afternoon, we, uh, as we continue to work our way through various psalms in the book of Psalms uh, this afternoon, we're going to consider a brief psalm, Psalm 67. So I invite you to turn to Psalm 67. The psalm is entitled, for the choir director with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah. That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer. Our Lord and Father in heaven, once again, we ask that your spirit would open up our hearts to hear what is being taught to us in this portion of your infallible word. We ask, O Lord, that, that... Your word would find a lodging place in our hearts. We pray that this would be uh, manna from heaven to us as we consider the scriptures. Feed us through the word and strengthen us in your grace. For Jesus' sake we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Title my sermon this afternoon is Let All the Peoples Praise You. And there's... uh, number of key words that you can be listening for to help, uh, to help you follow along this afternoon. Well, dear friends in Christ, this short psalm that we are considering on this Lord's Day afternoon has rightly been described as a missionary psalm. It's a portion of the Old Testament scriptures that reminds us that even in Old Testament times, God was not just concerned with his own people, Israel. He was not just concerned that his own people know and worship and reverence him appropriately. Rather, since God is the creator of all humanity, and since he is the sovereign Lord over all of the nations of mankind, his ultimate goal in blessing his people is that his way may be known on the earth. His saving power among all the nations, as verse 2 tells us, That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Now, consider what it was like on this earth during Old Testament times. In Old Testament times, the knowledge of the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the proper worship of the true and living God was almost exclusively limited to the covenant nation of Israel. Now, there are in the Old Testament occasional accounts of Gentiles coming to what we may regard as a saving knowledge of the true and living God. That true and living God being the electing, redeeming, covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Think, for example, of Rahab the Canaanite, the prostitute who, who hid the spies, who came to faith in the true and living God. Think of Ruth the Moabitess. Or think of Naaman, 
the commander of the army of the king of Syria, who had been healed of his leprosy by God through the prophet Elisha, and who actually took back some Israelite soil with him back to Syria so that he could offer sacrifice uh, to the God of Israel, and so forth. But besides very rare exceptions such as these, before the coming of Christ, the Gentile nations outside of Israel lay under the thick spiritual darkness and satanic bondage of pagan idolatry, with no saving knowledge of the true and living God. Indeed, to borrow words from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, prior to the coming of Christ in the New Covenant era, the Gentile nations on the whole were, to quote from Paul, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Those are tragic words. There is no worse condition to be to be in, spiritually speaking, than to be in a position where you are without God and without hope in the world. However, the Old Covenant scriptures anticipate a time in redemptive history when the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant would spread to all of the nations of humanity and when all the nations of mankind would come to acknowledge and confess and worship the God of Israel as the one true and living God. This, of course, would happen as a result of the coming of the promised Messiah and the ushering in of the Messianic era. Our passage from God's Word for this Lord's Day afternoon is one such passage that points to and anticipates that time when people from all nations will know and worship and reverence the true and living God. As the people of God cry out in this psalm, in verses 3 and 5, Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Now, what was the life setting uh, that serves as the background for the composition of this particular psalm? Well, the honest answer to that question is we we don't know with certainty. Dr. Van Gameren says of this psalm that, quote, its life setting is difficult to determine. Now, some scholars suggest that this psalm might have been used in worship at the Feast of Tabernacles, or perhaps as a thanksgiving for fruitful harvest. This is certainly possible, given the reference to a fruitful harvest in verse 6, where we read, The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. The allusion to the priestly Aaronic blessing in Numbers uh, 6, verses 24 through 26, as that allusion is found in verse 1, and the repeated refrain in verses 3 and 5, suggests that this psalm may have been used as, as part of some kind of antiphonal call and response liturgy, perhaps, again, during one of Israel's feasts. But beyond those possibilities, we don't really know the original setting of this psalm, but the content of this psalm is glorious because it points us, it gives us a a universal missionary picture. It reminds us that our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the blessed Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a God who seeks and saves that which is lost. So let's dive in and consider what we can learn from this brief psalm. First of all, notice, friends, that God's blessing upon his people leads to blessings among the nations. 
God's blessing upon his people leads to blessings among the nations. Again, let's consider verses 1 and 2. God, be gracious to us. The first petition in the opening verse of this psalm is a petition for God to be gracious to us as people and to do what? To bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. Selah is probably a, a musical or liturgical term. Why? Verse 2, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among the nations. Now, I mentioned that verse 1 includes an allusion to the ironic benediction of Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Let's turn uh, to Numbers 6. Let me just read Numbers 6, verses uh, 24 through 26. You've heard these words before at times uh, as part of the, uh, the benediction at the end of the service. It says this, Thus shall you bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Clearly, in this verse, uh, this allusion to the ironic blessing indicates that this psalm may indeed have been uh, used as part of, of an extended benediction at the end of, of corporate worship, uh, perhaps at the tabernacle or temple. But whatever the case may be, in this verse, the worshipers recognize their need for God's grace and blessing. As we come before God in our prayers, let us not come with an arrogant spirit, assuming that God that we are worthy to have an audience with the creator of the universe. Instead, let us come in humility, recognizing that God receives us only because he is gracious to us. And out of his sovereign grace, he chooses to condescend to bless us and to cause his face to shine upon us. Now, that's interesting language there uh, at the end of verse 1. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon us. Whatever could that mean? God's face shining upon us. Dr. Willem van Gemmeren comments, he says, An oriental monarch revealed in his facial expression either his pleasure or displeasure with the party that sought an audience with him. So the image of God's face shining upon us seems to be a symbol for his favor and blessing. So God's face shining upon his people appears to be a symbol for his favor and blessing. So the psalmist here is asking God, Lord, May you cause your favor and blessing to rest upon us, your people. And, and the use of this terminology of God's face is a, is a powerful way to get that imagery to stick in your mind uh, and uh, drives home the fact that we indeed need God to graciously favor us if he would receive us into his presence. Now, some of the children might, might ask, well, wait a minute, does God really have a face does God have a body like man, children? No, he does not. Of course, God is invisible. Since God is an invisible spirit, he doesn't literally have a face like we do. As the children's catechism reminds us in the answer to question nine, the question is, what is God? The Bible-based answer is, God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. Why then does 
the Bible sometimes refer to God as if he has a face? Or why does the Bible sometimes speak of God's eyes, God's nostrils, God's ears, God's hands, or his arms, his legs, his feet, even his toes, his fingers? Why do we read of these things in the Bible? Well, when the Bible speaks about God as if he had body parts, like eyes, ears, hands, or even a face, and so forth, this is what the scholars call anthropomorphic language, which is basically a fancy way of saying that God is using this language to speak about himself as if he were like a man. And he's doing this because we can't really conceptualize or understand God as a disembodied spirit. So God comes down to our level and speaks to us about himself in a way that we can relate to, a way that we can understand. So, but nevertheless, please understand this language here of God's face is not intended to be interpreted in a woodenly literalistic fashion. Rather, this is again a symbol, a symbolic language for God's favor and blessing resting upon his people. And why is it that God is petitioned to bless and show favor toward his people? Well, we're told in verse 2, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all the nations. Here we see that Hebrew parallelism where, where the same thing is being said twice in a slightly different way. For God's way to be known upon the earth is the same thing for his salvation to be known among the nations. And so God is petitioned to bless and to show favor toward his people so that all the nations of mankind might come to know God's ways and might come to experience his saving power. This verse helps to show that knowledge of the true God was never intended to be permanently limited to the people of Israel, but was to spread to all of the nations of humanity. It also serves to show that even in Old Testament times, there was a longing and a desire among God's faithful people for the knowledge and salvation of God, not just to be experienced by themselves, but to be experienced by all the nations, even among those Gentiles who lived outside of the boundaries of national Israel. This is even hinted at in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. For example, turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 4, and let's look uh, very quickly at Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 uh, through 12. I'm sorry, 5 through 8. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. We read these words. God, through Moses addressing the children of Israel as, as they're about to enter in and conquer the promised land, says this, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them. God is calling his people to be faithful, to keep and to do his word. Why? For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call upon him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? 
God's presence with his people Israel and their faithfulness to follow his word by his grace was meant to be a witness to the peoples that surrounded Israel. It was meant to be a witness to them that they might come to know the true and living God and might come to understand his word. Beloved, God had promised Abraham that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed, as God promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12, verse 3. And God also told Abraham that he would make Abraham, quote, the father of a multitude of nations. That's promised in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17, verses 4 and 5. God not only promised in his covenant with Abraham that he would make Abraham the father of the Israelite nation, but that he would make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations. The Abrahamic covenant wasn't just a Jewish thing. It anticipated the universal proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in its new covenant fullness. This covenant promise to Abraham, of course, was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. For all who are united to Christ are sons and daughters of Abraham, at least spiritually speaking. And by the way, this is a very clear teaching in the New Testament scriptures. It's a teaching that has been obscured by the error of dispensationalism, but it is a teaching that is very clear in the word of God. It's not about race. It's not about physical lineage or genealogy from Abraham, the patriarch. It's about God's grace and it's about faith. Consider, for example, there's many passages we could look at, but as we compare Scripture with Scripture, look with me, if you would, at Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29. Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. The Apostle Paul there, as he's counteracting the Judaizers, the proclaimers of a false and legalistic gospel, as he's uh, speaking of God's covenant plan and of justification by faith. Here's what he says. Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. The Greek's being used there to indicate Gentiles. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then notice what he says in verse 29. And if you belong to Christ. Now let's pause there. Who's he addressing? He's addressing a congregation of mostly Gentile Christians. He says, if you, you Gentiles included, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. The promise was never meant to be limited to national Israel. It was a promise that was to spread around the world. And we have hints of that even in the Old Testament scriptures. This verse, uh, Galatians 3.29, reminds me of that little children's song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. So are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Indeed, let all the nations praise him. Our psalm for this afternoon anticipates this time in redemptive history, when peoples from all the nations of humanity would come to know the true and living God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and would experience his blessing of salvation, resulting in worldwide worship and reverence for the true God. Let us pray for God to continue to bless us, his people, not just so that we might bask in his blessings, 
Though praise God, he desires to bless us. Indeed, he has in Christ blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But let's not just pray for God to bless us that we may keep those blessings to ourselves. Instead, let us pray for God to bless us, his people, that his blessings might flow far as the curse is found. Now that brings us to the next section of this brief psalm. Consider next, beloved, that worldwide knowledge of God leads to worldwide praise for God. Worldwide knowledge of God leads to worldwide praise for God. Verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Notice it's not just people, it's peoples, plural. Let the peoples, meaning the Gentiles too, let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Not just the nation of Israel, but the nations. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on earth. Selah. And then verse 3 is repeated again. The words of verse 3 are repeated in verse 5, indicating a liturgical refrain. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. I want to share with you a quote from John Piper. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with uh, the popular uh, evangelical preacher, John Piper. And uh, as, before I make, uh, share this quote with you, I do want to say that I have some serious theological differences and, uh, uh, with and reservations about John Piper and his theology. But in his book on missions, entitled Let the Nations Be Glad, he begins that book with a very sound statement. So hear what he has to say. He says this, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal in missions. It's the goal in missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. If you're taking notes, write that down. Let me repeat that. The goal of missions is not just the salvation of sinners. Praise God, that's one aspect of the goal of missions. But the goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. Piper's words kind of remind me of some words that are probably more familiar to you. The words of the answer to the shorter catechism question one. What is the chief end of man? We know the answer, right? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Not just man's chief end is to glorify God, but to enjoy him forever. Let the nations be glad. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. God delights in the joy of his people rejoicing in him. Now in verse 4, the psalmist goes on and says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. 
for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Now, some of us might, you know, look at that term judge, and we might think, well, why would we rejoice at the notion of God being our judge? When we tend to think of a judge, we tend to think of uh, an austere figure who condemns us, who either justifies or condemns. And sometimes the Bible uh, contemplates God in that role as the judge, the judge who either justifies or condemns. But here the term judge is being used in the sense of govern. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Why? For you will judge, i.e. you will govern the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. In the ancient world, a just and good judge was a rare thing. Oftentimes, judges, you know, you had to, if you wanted justice, you had to grease the palms of the judge. You had to bribe the judge uh, to hear your case and to give you justice. But if you were poor, if you were without resources to bribe the judge, then your case would not be heard, and justice and uprightness would not be done. But the good news is that God will judge his people in the sense he will govern them and he will bless them. To be judged, in other words, governed by the God of grace, blessing, and covenant mercies, is not to experience his condemning wrath, but to know his saving and guiding power and presence. Think, for example, of the book of Judges in the uh, Old Testament. When the Israelites would go astray and, and break the covenant and God would raise up a foreign adversary to, uh, to, to judge them, to, to bring a punishment upon them for their violations of the covenant. The people of God would then, it was a cycle that was repeated over and over again during that period of Israel's history. The people would again cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And the Lord would raise up what? A judge. That judge was a savior figure. That pointed forward to Jesus, the Savior and judge of his people. So it is a good thing for God to judge us in the sense that is being spoken of here in verse 4. You will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Beloved, let us join our hearts and voices with that of the psalmist in praying that great multitudes of people from among all the nations of humanity would come to worship and praise God in spirit and in truth out of gratitude for his gift of salvation in Jesus. Do you, dear listener, know his saving grace? Have you, by his grace, come into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory? Come to Christ, and he will receive you, and you will know the joy of the Lord. Well, finally, as we come to the end of this psalm and to the end of our our worship service as well. Notice in verses 6 and, heaven, uh, six and 7, consider worldwide reverence for the God of the bountiful harvest. Worldwide reverence for the God of the bountiful harvest. Verse 6, the earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. It appears that God has indeed provided his people with a bountiful harvest in response to their petition for blessing, as verse 7 seems to show. And so the goal of God blessing his people with a bountiful harvest is for the nations outside of Israel to notice that bountiful harvest 
and to come to reverence the true and living God of Israel. Well, what's the connection there, Pastor? What? Why is it that um, you know that is that the psalmist thinks that the nations outside of Israel will notice God Yahweh granting His people a bountiful harvest and will come to consider and reverence uh, the true and living God, the God of Israel? Well, think about it. Many ancient pagans looked to their idols, their deities, to provide them with a successful agricultural cycle and thus a fruitful harvest. There are, there are harvest gods, harvest deities in the ancient Near East, for example. But we know, and the Israelites, uh, the faithful Israelites at least knew, that the true and living God alone provides such a harvest. And so the pagan peoples surrounding Israel, seeing God so abundantly providing his people with blessing, that too would draw them to consider the God of Israel, to see him as the true and living God. By implication, the joy of Israel over God having blessed them with a bountiful harvest leads the psalmist here to pray for God to grant, by implication, a great spiritual harvest of salvation, a spiritual harvest that will extend beyond the borders of Israel to bless a great multitude from among the nations and people groups of the world, that they might come to know and trust and reverence the true and living God, the God who shows grace, the God who grants blessings, the God who governs and guides the nations of mankind in his ways. May this be our prayer as well, that all the ends of the earth may fear him. What does it mean to fear God? Adam and Eve, after they fell in the garden, they certainly were afraid of God. They ran from God. They hid from God. They, they sowed uh, fig leaves to try to cover their nakedness. But that's not the kind of fear, that craven fear that flees from God. That's not what the psalmist is speaking of here. What does it mean to fear God in a godly sense, in the sense uh, that, uh, that uh, proceeds from true faith? It is a sense of holy reverence and awe. Holy reverence and awe. May all the ends of the earth fear him in the sense of reverence him with awe. That is our prayer. And that is, and that is our prayer for ourselves as well, that we might reverence him in this way. Just to close off our time, I want to leave you with a quote from Dr. Willem van Gemmeren. Uh, in, in his commentary on the Psalms, he has a very insightful uh, paragraph, and I just want to read this. He says this. This, this is considering that this is a missionary psalm. He says, Since the coming of Christ, the roles of the Jews and Gentiles have been reversed. The Church of Christ as the people of God is largely composed of Gentiles who have come to know God's ways in salvation in the kingdom of Christ and in his sovereign rule in the affairs of this world. Our joy is now full in Jesus Christ. We have reason to sing for joy as our Heavenly Father blesses us by providing for our needs. And he refers to Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Our prayer must always include a petition to the Father that Israel too may fear him by believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Then all the ends of the earth will fear him and the goal of the messianic kingdom will be closer. Friends, as we pray and work and give to send missionaries throughout the world, as well we should, let us also remember to pray for and labor 
toward the conversion of the Jews. Few things are more joyful than seeing uh, a Jewish person come to see, to see their eyes open, to recognize Jesus as their Messiah, their Savior, their Lord, their King. It is a joyful thing. Let us pray for the conversions of the Jews. In God's sovereign mercy, may he grant that greater numbers among the Jews would come to recognize and accept Jesus of Nazareth as their divine Messiah and Savior. And so that all the nations, that all the peoples may praise him. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord and Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that you are a missionary God, a God who seeks and saves that which is lost. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you loved us and you sought us out. You sent your Son, Jesus, for us. You poured your Spirit upon us. You drew us with the cords of love unto faith in Christ, and you continue to abide with us. Give us missionary hearts, hearts that uh, care for the souls of the lost and long to see them, too, come to faith and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen.